0: Well, hello and welcome to the iFormerX podcast where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. My name is Stuart Haynes and I'm the host of the iFormerX podcast and it's great to have you joining us today. Chronic pain is common and gabapentinoids such as gabapentin and pregabalin are frequently prescribed. While the official indications in terms of pain treatment are limited, to neuropathic pain associated with diabetes or spinal cord injuries and shingles, gabapentinoids are often prescribed when the etiology of the patient's pain is a bit unclear. And I think their use has been accelerated in recent years as clinicians seek alternatives to opioids. I think there's a perception though that among many clinicians that gabapentinoids are somehow safer and alternative medications that might be used for pain, particularly in older adults. And anyone who consults in a skilled nursing facility or works in a geriatric assessment clinic will likely tell you that gabapentin and pregabalin are prescribed a lot. And sometimes it's unclear if they're truly indicated. While gabapentinoids are generally safe, they are not devoid of side effects. And many of our patients experience grogginess and sedation and lightheadedness. And I think we often forget that they can cause lower extremity edema. A recent paper published in the Journal of the American Geriatric Association, or more affectionately called JAGS, reported a troubling increase in diuretic use in older adults prescribed either gabapentin or pregabalin. And here to tell us about the study and its implications in practice are Veronica Arsery and Mallory Talese. Dr. Arseri is a PGY2 endocrinology pharmacy practice resident, and Dr. Talise is assistant professor of pharmacy practice at the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, and they both provide patient care at the Albany Medical Center Division of Community Endocrinology in Albany, New York. Mallory, it's it's great to have you back on the iFormerX podcast today, and Veronica, it's wonderful to have you here as a first-time contributor. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having us, Stuart. Third time's the charm. Thank you for having us. Excited to be here
2: for the first time.
0: So, Mallory, to get this discussion started, I'm, I'm wondering if you can give us a better understanding of some of the adverse effects associated with gabapentinoid use. As I said in the introduction, I think prescribers consider pregabalin and gabapentinoid to be like safer choices than some of the other alternatives that they might use, such as opioids or tricyclic antidepressants or NSAIDs. But these medications are not risk-free.
1: No, Stuart, they certainly aren't risk-free. In fact, both gabapentin and pregabalin can lead to moderate dose-dependent increases in extracellular GABA levels in the brain, causing symptoms of relaxation and euphoria. This is especially apparent during the beginning of therapy, when supertherapeutic doses are taken, and when they are used in combination with opioids. Pharmacovigilance studies of gabapentinoids have reported that abuse and misuse is more common with pregabalin, and luckily, pregabalin is already a Schedule V controlled substance. Unfortunately, gabapentin is not, making it much more accessible and a more convenient option when looking for an alternative agent to opioids or NSAIDs for pain management. And for these reasons, multiple states have added gabapetin to their prescription monitoring program and even treated as a controlled substance to minimize the risk of abuse and misuse. Some other problematic side effects to consider for gabapetinoids include neurologic symptoms such as ataxia, somnolence, and dizziness, along with peripheral edema. The incidence of neurologic symptoms is upwards of 36%, depending on the side effect, dose, and agent that we're considering. And the incidence of peripheral edema ranges from 4 to 12%. These side effects are often dose dependent and can be mitigated by slowly titrating the dose. And specifically, the CNS adverse effects that accompany gabapentinoids landed them on the Beers criteria due to their fall risk potential in elderly patients. When prescribed to elderly patients, they are recommended only in low doses and should be avoided in combination with opioids unless they are being used for cross-tapering purposes. And even this combination of opioids and gabapentinoids should be prescribed cautiously in elderly patients given the higher risk of respiratory depression, as noted in a 2019 FDA drug safety warning.
0: So, Mallory, let's talk about the study that you reviewed in your iFormerX commentary. And I, as I stated, the, the study was reported and appeared in the October 2021 issue of the Journal of the American Geriatrics Society. And the paper is entitled, evidence of a gabapentinoid and diuretic prescribing cascade among older adults with lower back pain. Now, we posted a link to that paper on the iFormerX website, but I'm hoping you can give us a brief summary of the study methods and the key results.
1: Yeah, so this study was a population-based retrospective cohort study, which utilized the Ontario Health Insurance Plan to identify community-dwelling patients Greater than 65 years of age through claims for newly diagnosed lower back pain between April 2011 and March 2019. The primary outcome of the study was the assessment of initiation of a diuretic within 90 days after initiation of a gabapetenoid, and that included either gabapetin or pregabalin. The secondary outcome was initiation of a diuretic within 180 days after gabapetenoid initiation. The diuretics that were assessed were amelioride, chlorthalidone, aplarinone, furosemide, hydrochlorothiazide, endapamide, spironolactone, and triamterine. I won't go too in-depth about the exclusion criteria as the list is extensive, however, I will mention that patients with a history of an epilepsy diagnosis in the year preceding the index date and prevalent NSAID users were excluded from the study, and this will become more important when we discuss the limitations of the study. A total of 7,867 gabapetenoid users and 252,477 non-gabapetenoid users met the inclusion criteria. Baseline demographics were similar between the two groups and the median age was 74. The statistical analysis demonstrated a higher cumulative incidence of diuretic dispensing in the gabapetenoid group compared to the non-gabapetenoid group for both the primary and secondary outcome. The median time to diuretic dispensing was 36 days in the gabapentinoid group compared to 41 days in the non-gabapentinoid group. The most prescribed diuretics were furosemide and hydrochlorothiazide. And in an analysis based on dosing categories, those prescribed high-dose gabapentinoids demonstrated a significantly increased risk of diuretic dispensing, but this was not observed over a 90-day period. And just to give you an idea of the definition of high dose, they considered high dose as doses of a greater than 1,800 milligrams per day for gabapentin and greater than 300 milligrams per day for pregabalin.
0: Well, Veronica, there are a few things that I really like about the study design and the analysis, but, you know, every study has caveats and limitations. So what do you consider to be the strengths and potential weaknesses of this study?
2: So thinking about the strengths, it was great to see that the study was performed in a large patient population, notably over 250,000 patients, and performed in the population that we're really gonna see in ambulatory care practice, which are community-dwelling older adults as opposed to those in facilities, and those that are using these medications outpatient with ambulatory care follow-up. Some things to consider when applying these findings to practice are that this study only captured patients using gabapentinoids for back pain, but missed labeled and unlabeled indications including peripheral neuropathy, fibromyalgia, and neuropathic pain that we commonly see these medications prescribed for. Additionally, Mallory mentioned the list of diuretics assessed in this study, but this list did not include terosamide or bimetanide, meaning that certain diuretics weren't captured and ultimately both the indications not captured and the diuretics not captured could lead to an underestimation of the frequency of this prescribing cascade. Over-the-counter NSAID use was also not assessed. Uh, Prescription use was assessed, but not over-the-counter use, and over-the-counter use could have contributed to edema as a a co-founding factor. Ultimately, there was also no ability to connect diagnostic codes to diuretic prescribing. For instance, if a patient was prescribed a diuretic for another indication, such as hypertension, this was something that could not be assessed by the study. So just a few factors that need to be considered when applying these findings to practice.
0: I think this study, Veronica, brings to our attention a potential problem that is often overlooked, that is the the risk of a prescribing cascade. And this problem is not unique to the gabapentinoids. Indeed, it probably happens far more frequently than we realize because side effects such as lower extremity edema or constipation, for example, are often chalked up to being, you know, an older adult. So I'm wondering if you might have some practical advice on how to avoid prescribing cascades and the important role that a pharmacist can play.
2: So really step one in preventing prescribing cascades is to increase the awareness of prescribing cascades. So this study did a great job in contributing to the literature around known prescribing cascades and ultimately discussing this on i4MRX is another great uh, mechanism for increasing the awareness of prescribing cascades in the minds of medical professionals so that when an older adult patient presents with a new onset symptom, that medications are considered as a possible cause. Now, Dr. Jerry Gershwitz, who is a geriatrician and a contributor to this study, really has a great quote in terms of management of prescribing cascades, that any symptom in an elderly patient should be considered a drug side effect until proven otherwise. And that really highlights the need to ask in our older adult patients, could this symptom be the result of an existing drug therapy? And to add medication use to the differential diagnosis when these patients present. As you mentioned, side effects are commonly misidentified as new onset medical conditions and chalked up to conditions associated with old age. So really adding that question that the symptom could be the result of an existing drug therapy to your clinical thought process can help identify prescribing cascades. When identifying high-risk medications, resources like the Beers Criteria and Stop Start can help identify medications with an increased risk of side effects in older adults. As I mentioned before, this study is contributing to identification of new prescribing cascades and ultimately uh, you can help identify prescribing cascades by being familiar with side effect profiles. Notably, this study assessed edema caused by gabapentinoids, but edema is a really common side effect and many medications such as imlodipine and TZDs can also cause edema, ultimately lead to diuretic prescribing and this prescribing cascade. So, at its baseline, prescribing cascades are a medication-related issue, and so pharmacists as the medication experts are ideally positioned to complete medication regimen review and identify medications with a high risk of side effects.
0: Well, Veronica, Mallory, thank you for being on our show today and, and talking to us about the risk of adverse effects associated with gabapentinoids, and really, you know, the larger issue which is the potential for prescribing cascades that not only increase the risk of more side effects but also increase healthcare costs. Well, I hope our listeners will share with us some of their thoughts about how we can address the overuse of gabapentinoids and provide some additional examples where they commonly see a prescribing cascade. Now remember, iFormRx members can leave comments and use the interactive features on the website. And if you're not already a member of iFormRx, I encourage you to sign up today. It's free to health professionals, including students, residents, and fellows. And if you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, I hope you'll take advantage of the American Pharmacists Association's board prep and recertification program. You can earn recertification and continuing education credit for listening to this podcast and reading the commentary posted on the iFormerX website. So just click on that link posted below the article to learn more about that program. And lastly, a big shout out to Joseph Nardolillo. Uh, from Wayne State University, who recently joined our iFormerX advisory board. Joe was first introduced to iFormerX during his residency training and has been a frequent contributor ever since. So if you're an ambulatory care pharmacy practice resident and would like to get involved with iFormerX, just send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. And until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, editor-in-chief of iFormerX, signing off. Be safe, my friends.